Today, what I'm going to do is pick up with part two from the message that we began two Sundays ago. Uh, today is part two, Mark chapter seven in your Bibles. We've been talking about truth versus tradition. Truth versus tradition. <laughs> And that really is the title of this message as we deal with this episode of what took place in the life and the ministry of Jesus. We're in Mark chapter 7. Now, as many of you know, we're in a sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. And we're preaching through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we are now in chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, talking about truth versus tradition. Truth supersedes tradition. God's truth is much more important than the traditions of men. God's truth, much more important than the traditions of men. Let us just remind ourselves of where we are in this episode of Jesus confronting the Jewish religious leaders about the superiority of God's truth over their traditions. Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the leaders of, some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Parenthetically, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you'll no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like this. Stop there. Resuming our message today from verse 8, what Jesus said to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. This 
Brothers and sisters, this is one of the most powerful indictments against the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day. They had supplanted God's word with their traditions of the elders. They held tradition over truth. While they attempted to accuse Jesus' disciples of defilement, Jesus exposed them for their disloyalty to God's word and therefore their disloyalty to God. Now here they were watching every detail of every movement that Jesus and his disciples were doing, looking for every flaw. The critics, remember, as we've called them, the critics of Jesus. And yet here they are with Jesus exposing one of the greatest gaping holes about them, their hypocrisy. You see, Jesus makes a sharp contrast between the word of God on the one hand and the words of men on the other. As far as Jesus is concerned, their traditions of the elders amounted to nothing more than the words of men or mere human rules, as he calls them. By giving more importance to their traditions, the Jewish religious leaders were actually rejecting the Bible. The original Greek sentence of verse 8 literally says this. It literally says, leaving the commandment of God, you are holding on to the traditions of men. That's the literal rendering of the original Greek. The word leaving comes from the Greek word meaning to abandon or to cancel. Now, there's a popular familiar word these days, is it not? Cancel. We live in cancel culture, don't we? <laughs> Last I heard, it's cancel culture, I, you know. They canceled the commands of God and instead committed themselves to the traditions of men. Tradition in place of truth. Today, how many people have abandoned the word of God in order to embrace the words of men? How many church people have canceled the scriptures and instead committed themselves to human traditions? This is not only a severe indictment of ancient religious leaders, but it is a serious indictment of too many modern Christians, both leaders and followers, in today's church. We cannot hold anything more important than the truth of God's word, the Holy Bible, the scriptures. Nothing is more important. In fact, we say as Christian believers, that the Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice for the church and for the Christian believer. The words of men must never take place, take the place of the word of God in our lives, nor in our congregation. Jesus indicted them for holding on to the traditions of men. Now, the Greek word hold, to hold to 
means, it means uh, strongly adhere to something or to remain committed to something. In this case, the oral tradition of the elders. Now, many of you may not be familiar with the tradition of the elders. You read this in the Bible and wondered what they were talking about, what Jesus is referring to here. Well, briefly, this was an oral, not written, an oral tradition the Pharisees believed was just as important as the written law of Moses. For centuries, the rabbis had promoted the false idea that Moses had received two forms of law on Mount Sinai, the written law and an oral law. They taught that the oral law preserved the integrity of the written law by elaborating every conceivable application of it. So the oral law consisted of many different rules and regulations that went beyond, in fact, went far beyond what the written law of Moses said. Now, in so doing, the oral law became an oral tradition that came to be viewed as equal to the written law of Moses. And this was the core of the problem that Jesus had with them. This was the issue that he had with the Pharisees who believed that the oral law was just as important as the written law of Scripture. That's the fundamental point. See, The, the word of God versus the words of men. The truth of God versus the traditions of men. That's why Jesus confronts them in the way that he does and calls them hypocrites because that's what they are. That's what they were. Now, in their oral tradition, what they did was they took, the, the, his was, here's some of the thinking behind this, if you will. That, that the law of Moses, the Bible, does not, it, it's too general. This was their thinking, too general. So, for lack of a better way to describe this, we've got to help it by applying and explaining it in all kinds of, in every kind of conceivable detail. Mandating for how people should apply it in every conceivable human interaction in detail. And so they constructed this, this, this body, if you will, of oral traditions. It was not written. It was not written. And so they constructed this body, the rabbis, this body of oral tradition that the people, they said, were bound to live by just as they were bound to live by the law of Moses, the word of God, the Bible. That was their problem. Because any time that we make anything else oral or written for that matter, anytime we affix the same level of importance to anything else uh, as we do to the word of God, we're in serious spiritual trouble. 
Whenever people make tradition, whatever their tradition is, whenever they make tradition equal to scripture, this is a serious problem. Tradition must never trump scripture. The words of man are never equal to the word of God. When tradition is more important than truth, we are in trouble. This is why Jesus reserved his harshest criticism for the Pharisees and the scribes, the rabbis, and others like them. That's what is going on here. That's the, the crux, if you will, of the problem. So verse 9 says, and he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own tradition." You know, I like the way the New American Standard Bible translates this verse. This is verse 9. It goes like this. You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. <laughs> experts at setting aside the commands of God. They figured out all kinds of loopholes, if you will. <laughs> around the law of Moses, purporting to actually help the law of Moses, the word of God. Hmm. Experts. Now, remember we said last time we were talking about these Pharisees and these scribes, their knowledge of the Bible um, is something that uh, many modern people today would have difficulty trying to conceptualize because remember now, I mean, we... We struggle with chapters and verses, <laughs> remembering chapters and verses. You know, even I do, okay? I may know a scripture, and then where is it? What chapter and verse is that? You know what I mean? They didn't have chapters and verses. Yet they knew it, and they knew it all, and they knew where it was. They knew where to find it. Think about the level of deep knowledge that that requires. They were indeed experts. But they were experts as as the NASB renders it, experts said setting aside the commands of God in order to keep their traditions. Jesus uses sarcasm to indict them for neglecting the word of God. They were reputed to be experts in the law of Moses and scripture, but in reality they were experts at having set aside God's word in favor of their man-made traditions. By placing their own tradition on the same level with Scripture, they would inevitably replace Scripture with their tradition. They substituted their oral traditions for the Word of God itself. See, that's just it. By placing their oral tradition on the same level with Scripture, in essence, they were replacing Scripture. And that's actually what Jesus is indicting them for, having replaced Scripture. You put anything else on the same level with God's Word, then you are actually replacing God's Word with it. Now, okay, so let me take this a little further for you to just help, hopefully, by God's grace, elucidate your understanding. If you put anything or anyone else on the same level as God, what would you, in effect, be doing? Replacing God. 
That's actually what they were guilty of, you see. But not only that, there's more. The Greek words in verse 9 uh, are more forceful than the NIV translation reflects. If you have an NIV, a New International Version, translation of the Bible, the Greek words here are more forceful. They intentionally, so what this means is that, and what Jesus is saying about them is that they intentionally rejected the commandments of the word of God. As one writer comments, and I quote, the Pharisees do not simply set aside God's commandments, that is, favor something in their place. They reject God's commandments by making a conscious choice against them, end quote. So by doing what they have done, they have actually rejected the word of God. And replaced the word of God with man-made rules and regulations. At this point, brothers and sisters, some in, in, introspection is appropriate for us today. We need to examine ourselves to see if we are guilty of the same sins as the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Have we set aside the Bible for something else in our lives? Have we placed human opinions on the same level with Scripture? Okay, so think about it, brothers and sisters. Today, the almighty opinion is the most highly valued thing in society. You know how I know? Let me tell you how I know. <laughs> and I know you know. Here's how we know. All you got to do is look at television. All you got to do is look at cable TV. How many opinion shows, whether they're purported to be news shows or other, how many opinion shows are on television? And how many opinionators have gotten filthy rich off of a podcast with nothing but opinions? People just talking out of their mouth, out the side of their head, out of everywhere else. <laughs> just talking. And what are, what are they saying? It's just opinions. As a matter of fact, people are more prone to listen to opinions than they are to listen to experts nowadays. Experts, in many cases, have been, uh, you know, jettisoned, put aside. We don't want to hear no experts. <laughs> it's about the almighty opinion. And so much so that there is an entire industry that has dedicated itself to managing people's opinions. And we worry about people's opinions, worry about people's opinions in you know, the business world in corporate America because it means money. It directly affects the bottom line. But not only is this the case in corporate America, it's also the case in Christian America. We're worried about people's opinions because it affects the bottom line. This has always been a temptation for churches. This has always been a temptation for pastors. 
to worry about people's opinions of us and our preaching because it directly affects the bottom line if they walk out the door and don't come back and stop giving. So what some of us have done in the pulpit, in the pews of some churches, is that we managed to tailor the message. I say we, not, not, not. They've managed <laughs> to tailor the message in a way that doesn't offend people so that they leave and not return. But when you do that, you rob the message of its conviction power. And nobody repents of anything if they're never convicted about anything. As a matter of fact, let me tell you this. I've been a Christian since 1980. I have never in nearly 43 years of being a Christian believer, I have never grown anywhere in my life without the conviction and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit working on me. I heard a sermon preached somewhere in my church or elsewhere that convicted me and caused godly sorrow. Not false guilt, but godly sorrow made me go back and think about what I heard. Think about the word I heard. Think about what God said in his word to me about what I need to change, how I need to change, and where I need to grow. And you know something? I rejoice in that. I rejoice in it. I love preaching that convicts me. I love preaching that makes me think I love preaching that challenges my soul because I have never grown any other way. I've never been able to grow any other way. And let me tell you something. I believe this would also be true for you if you're a Christian believer. You're not going to grow without the convicting work and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. You see. But... We live in a time where since there's so many people who don't know how to deal with guilt and who don't know how to identify what's going on within them, when they experience the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, they turn around and run in the opposite direction away from it. And any church or any pulpit that preaches the word in such a way that the convicting power of the Holy Spirit impacts people, they don't want any part of that. I want to be, you know, it's like I want to be made to feel good, not made to feel bad. Well, it's, it's not about making you feel good or bad. Any more than surgery is about making you feel good or bad. You know, surgery is about making you well. It doesn't feel good that, I mean, they can give you anesthesia and take away as much pain as possible, and even with that, you can still experience discomfort, you know what I mean? Even if not during, certainly after, you know? Um, yeah. But it's about making, making the person well. 
Well, the same is true for spiritual surgery. It's not easy, it's often not pretty, and it often doesn't necessarily feel good, but it is good for us. Spiritual surgery. Now, in this church, all of my now nearly 16 years as pastor of this church has always been about spiritual surgery on me and on everybody else in the congregation. Because that's how God works. That's how God's word works. And there are many of us in here, even now, who can testify to the fact that just sitting and submitting and listening to the word of God Sunday in and Sunday out over time and over years has brought about a transformation that we could explain no other way. You are not where you were five or ten years ago in the Lord. And there are many people in that congregation, I believe, who can testify to that. Why? Because it's the word of God and the power of God's word and the convicting power of the word that transforms our souls over time, not overnight. Everybody, everybody wants microwave discipleship. There is no such thing as microwave discipleship. There is no such thing. <laughs> Please don't think that way because you can't grow that way. You can't take a class and become a mature Christian believer because you took a Bible class, because you took a discipleship class in the church or whatever you did. No, 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 no. Let me, listen, let me, listen, let me give you one quick example here as I get back on the message and keep going. How many years did it take for God to do what he had purposed to do in the souls of the children of Israel? When Moses led them out of Egypt, they could have gotten to the promised land within a year. They didn't. What did God do? <laughs> they went to God's school in the desert, the school of the wilderness. And they didn't just go there for one year or one decade. They went there for four decades before they were ready to cross over into the promised land. Moses started at the age of 80. By the time Moses was done, he was 120. Think about it. Let me, let me move on. Has man's thoughts supplanted God's word in our lives? The Bible ought to always be the final authority for all matters and the life of the Christian believer. Is the word of God our ultimate authority or not? That's the question. Does scripture have the final say in your life or not? Now the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God. We cannot claim the Bible is our final authority if we do not preach it if we do not read it, if we do not recite it, and if we do not practice it. You see. Hmm. Second Timothy chapter 3, 
verse 16 says of scripture, of your Bible, of our Bible, all 66 books of it. All scripture is God breathed. That word that we translate into two words, God breathed, is one word in the Greek that refers to divine inspiration. And remember, when we talk about inspiration, we're not talking about inspiration the way the culture talks about it these, you know, these days. Ah, oh, you inspire me. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something that is God-breathed. That's the biblical definition of inspiration. 2 Timothy 3.16. Jesus does not stop with his indictment of his opponents. He also illustrates an example of their sin in verses 10 to 12 here in the following manner. Read along with me if you have your Bible, and I hope you do. Verses 10 to 12 in Mark chapter 7. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, that is to say it has been devoted to God, then you no longer allow them to do anything for their father or mother. Okay, so let me explain this to you for just a couple of moments because it's very important and very applicable. Jesus illustrates his indictment against them with scripture by quoting the fifth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, which says, Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. He also quotes from scripture in Exodus chapter 21, verse 17, anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. Okay, now this is in the context of uh, ancient Israel as a theocracy to dishonor parents was a capital offense in the ancient theocracy of ancient Israel in the Bible. These two passages essentially state that state the same command, both positively and negatively stated. Here it is simply, honor and do not curse your parents. Honor and do not curse your parents. When you take both of these passages together, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, and then chapter 21, verse 17. This is one of the most important and basic commands in Scripture. Children are always supposed to honor their parents. In Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Honoring parents honors God, but to dishonor parents is to curse them. God is pleased with us when we honor our parents. 
But he is displeased with us when we curse our parents. But even though the word of God commanded honoring parents, the oral tradition of the rabbis, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Jewish religious leaders, the oral tradition contradicted God's word, according to Jesus, in verses 11 to 12. This is what he says. Jesus says, the scripture says, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses them should be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Now, the phrase here, but you say, is a direct contradiction of the law of Moses in the Bible. It's a direct contradiction. The scripture says this, Jesus is saying to them, but you say something else. This was not a case of misunderstanding, by the way, on their part. They knew exactly what scripture says. They simply chose to contradict the scripture with their own human tradition. Tradition over truth. Let me explain this scenario further for our understanding. Children were expected to care for their parents, especially their aging and ailing parents. But whatever the case was, or whatever age, children were expected to take care of their parents. There was no such thing, now brothers and sisters, no such thing as government disability available to people. <laughs> Social security. Now I'm not critical of those, please don't hear that. Those, they just didn't exist in these days, in antiquity, in those days, I should say. When parents became old and unable to care for themselves, their children were supposed to take care of them. This is part of what was intended in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, where scripture commands the honoring of our parents. This is still true for us today. Even in an age of government disability, social security, Medicare, Medicaid, whatever else. We who are children should expect to take responsibility for caring for our parents, especially as they grow older. In our times, adult children often expect parents to continue to take care of them instead. I, we got a lot of this, and I think a lot more of it these days in light of the pandemic. I mean, you know, there are a lot of young people who are really hurting and in real trouble and need their parents to help them through the difficult time. There's nothing wrong with that. That's understandable. But the goal, of course, is, is for people, by God's grace, to be able to get on their feet, our young people to get on their feet and be able to take care of themselves, and by God's grace to take care of us when we can't take care of ourselves, you know? Mm. Yeah. In our times, though, 
aside from the problems of the pandemic and the fallout of the pandemic, we do have still too many adult children who are capable of taking care of their parents, but who won't do it, who still instead think somehow or another that parents should take care of them. Now listen, if this is you, the only thing I can say to you that I believe the Lord would have me to tell you at this point is one word, repent. You make more money than your parents ever thought about making. You do better than they, you did better sooner than they did. You should be taking care of them, not expecting them to do for you. When in some cases you better off than they are. You'd be surprised how many people think this way. In this wealthy age in which we live. Hmm. While there is nothing wrong with parents helping their adult children get established in life, at some point those kids ought to be willing to bless, honor, help, and take care of their aging parents. Ah, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, in the New Testament, in your Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Verses 3 through 16, the Apostle Paul there gives instructions on caring for widows and older members in the church family. Now, just as there was no such thing as, you know, government disability, Medicaid, and all of these other things that we have, at least in our wealthy society, and in a number of wealthy societies in this era, uh, you know, there was back then no such thing as life insurance either. <laughs> life insurance or social security. So families were responsible for caring for their vulnerable family members, especially the elderly, especially those who were widows. And in fact, Paul instructs the church along that passage that for the younger women who become widows, he encouraged them, the scripture encourages them to remarry, get married again, you know, and, and, and carry on. But for the older widows who would not, were not likely to be remarrying, their family members were first responsible to take care of them so that those widows would not become a burden on the church. Because the church already had enough widows it had to take care of, you see. So in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 4, the scripture says, If a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. I just read that from the Bible, everybody. <laughs> this is scripture. I didn't make that up. <laughs> and in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, the scripture says, Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, 
has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. God has some strong language for people who won't take care of their own like they're supposed to. And the scripture here, the apostle, the apostle Paul writing scripture, applies it a little more broadly, but the whole context here has to do, first of all, with children taking care of their parents and grandparents. But for anyone who does not take care of his family as he should, has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. This is a strong admonition, brothers and sisters. The church was not supposed to be burdened with caring for those who had family members who were capable of taking care of them. This is still true today. Kids and grandkids ought to take care of their aging parents and grandparents. This is how you honor them. You don't honor them just by your words. You have to honor them by your deeds. If you expect it to count with God, For elderly people who have no one left to care for them in their families, the church should help them. Yes. So the expectation, according to the Bible, is that children take care of their needy parents. However, the oral tradition contradicted the word of God, and Jesus exposed the corruption of the Pharisees and their oral tradition when he says this, but you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their parents is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their parents. Jesus here is accusing them of an egregious perversion of the word of God. Allow me to give an, a simple a description of what Jesus is talking about here. Listen to this. As I hurry to a close, but listen. A son knows that the Bible requires him to take care of his aging parents. But instead of providing for his parents, he declares his wealth devoted to God in order to prevent having to take care of his parents. Declaring his money Corbin, you see that word there in your Bible, declaring his money Corbin, or devoted to God, did not mean he was giving up control of his wealth immediately. Corbin was similar to deferred giving. The money would be supposedly given to God at his death. This would prevent him from having to do anything for his parents because his money has already been devoted to God. So he wasn't giving up his money. He was devoting it to God, and in so doing, then it would not be available to help his parents. Do you see how twisted this is? All in the name of God? All in the name of devotion and piety? So the practice of Corbin nullified the command of God's word that children should care for their elderly and needy parents. So the parents would be denied the assistance and security they needed in their aging years because of corrupt 
and greedy children and religious officials conspiring together to subvert the commands of Scripture. In other words, what the rabbis and the priests in the temple and whatnot, what they would do is they would allow him to, well, devote his wealth to God, call it Corbin, devoted. And then, of course, when he died, yes, it would be given, but his parents would get nothing. They, in conspiring with that son, would get everything. You see the corruption? And the parents get nothing. The grandparents get nothing. This is what Jesus is indicting them for. Widespread, systemic, religious, theological corruption. Jesus concludes this illustration of his indictment in verse 13 with these words. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Listen, this is what he says there. You nullify the word of God by your tradition. And you, listen, uh, the words here in the original in verse 13 are in the present tense, grammatically, meaning you do this right now as a matter of practice. This is a part of what you do, all of you, plural. This is what you all do. Which means that this corruption, this sin, is systemic among them. Instead of teaching the people to honor the commands of God's word, the religious officials, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the rabbis, lead the people in disobedience to God's commands. You cannot dishonor parents and honor God at the same time. And this example was one of many such corruptions practiced regularly by the critics of Jesus. Now here they are wanting to find fault with Jesus and with Jesus' disciples simply because the disciples don't go through a ritual ceremony. Remember what we said the last sermon, the washing of the hands didn't have anything to do with hygiene. It wasn't about hygiene. It wasn't about personal hygiene. It was simply about religious ritual. And Jesus was not making his disciples go through these empty religious rituals of washing their hands. And that's what they accuse him of. And their accusations against Jesus and his disciples are designed to undermine the credibility of Jesus among the people. So what Jesus does in response is Jesus exposes them for the hypocrites that they truly are. This is not a pretty moment. It's not an easy moment. And the Lord does not Pull any punches, as we like to say. Because for them, speaking of his critics, if there were ever any possible hope 
that they, someone among them, might repent? This is the only way it would happen. is by Jesus prophetically confronting them. Because otherwise, they have concealed themselves and the true intentions of their hearts under the cloak, under the thick cloak of religion. It's hard to get through to them. Impossible to get through to them any other way except by the power of the prophetic word that can break through the thick facade that they have put up for centuries. That's why Jesus confronts them in this way in this moment. They confronted Jesus the way they did, and they did it publicly in an attempt to try to undermine his credibility, which they could not do. Well, let me hurry on now and finish it up, brothers and sisters, with just a couple of things. Mm. Truth versus tradition. That there's some, you know, let us learn some important cautionary lessons from Jesus in this episode. First of all, that truth must always supersede tradition. When tradition supersedes truth, we become hypocrites. That's what Jesus called them. And it's what Jesus will call us if we commit the same sin. Truth must always supersede tradition, the truth of God's word. That God's word must always supersede the words of men under every circumstance, no matter what. Secondly, another lesson that's important for us to take away from this is that we ought to always Practice what we profess. If you don't have a heart that's willing to practice what you profess, then the first thing you've got to do is take a good look in the mirror and do what the scripture says and examine yourself to see if you are genuinely in the faith. Always practice what you profess. That goes for all of us, all of us. And by the way, this is a lifelong effort of discipleship to practice what we profess. Practice not only what we preach, but practice what has been preached to us. The truth that has been preached to us, you see. Third, honor God by honoring our parents. Listen to me. Listen, listen. I don't care what your parents did or did not do, okay, it doesn't matter. Now, I'm not saying your pain doesn't matter. Of course your pain matters. Of course whatever happened to you, the bad that happened to you, it does matter. I'm not saying your pain doesn't matter. What I am saying to you is, whatever they have done, whatever they did, or did not do, even if they were never there and they were supposed to be there. It doesn't matter what they did or did not do. Honor God by honoring your parents. What's the main point there? Honor God. The way to honor God is by honoring your parents. Even if you think they don't deserve it. Doesn't matter. 
Honor them anyway. By the way, one day, you may need grace too. Finally, submit to the Savior. Submit to the Savior. You see, that's what these Pharisees and the rest of them needed to do. Now, instead of trying to criticize and attack and undermine Jesus, what they needed to be doing was submitting to him. Submit to the Savior. Don't argue with the Lord. Do you know why I say don't argue with the Lord? It's because you're always wrong when you do. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I mean, it's, amen, amen, it's true. You can't argue with the Lord. You're always wrong. He's always right because he's God. If I'm arguing with God, I'm just wrong. That's all there is. I'm just wrong. I'm just wrong. Even if what I think I'm saying is right, I'm still wrong to be arguing with God about it. Replace, I need to replace my arguing with humility. When I'm wanting to argue with God, that's pride. That's human pride. That's what that is. That's all it is. It's just, it's nothing more than just raw, sinful, human pride. Stop arguing with God in your soul. That's why you feel like you're losing your mind sometimes. You are losing your mind. <laughs> if you're going to argue with God, argue with God? Some of you want to argue with God like you argue with your parents, argue with your spouse, argue with your siblings, argue with your friends. God is neither one of them. God is God. And yes, he is a very present help in the midst of your pain. But don't push God away with your pride. Submit to the Savior. Submit to the Lord. Wherever he tells you. And you'll be richly blessed beyond measure and imagination. I wish I had more time to say more about this, brothers and sisters, but the time has escaped me now. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before your presence to thank you for the power of your word, your holy word, here in Mark chapter 7. Thank you, Lord, for the truth that you teach us. Help us, each and every one of us, Father, to receive your word rightly, to receive your word humbly, to receive your word faithfully, O oh God. Help each and every one of us, those of us who are saved, O oh God. Let the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and your word, the work of your word, work in our souls, work the redemption in our souls that you have purchased us for. Continue that work of redemption within each and every one of us, Father. And for those among us who may not be saved, we pray right now that the convicting power of the Holy Spirit will draw them to Jesus, draw them to repentance and faith in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God, may we all submit to the Savior. May we honor you with our souls, honor you with our lives, Honor you with obedience to your word. Help us to remember what we have heard, O oh Father, and give us the wisdom 
to put it into practice. No, God, may we always honor truth instead of tradition. The truth of your word over the words of men. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen. And amen.